Section 40 of the Heroines of History. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Reese. The Heroines of History by John S. Jenkins. Madame Roland, Part 3. In 1790, the low but fearful rumblings of the political storm that had long been gathering over France boomed through the cities, along the valleys, echoed through the mountain hamlets, and sounded in the ears of those hidden in distant and obscure retreats. Monsieur Roland and his wife, aroused at the welcome tones of the first murmurings of liberty, hastened to Lyon, where the contest had arisen with powerful excitement. Madame Roland's saloons were thrown open, and the most prominent of the revolutionary party gathered there to discuss the principles to be adopted. Madame Roland engaged in their counsels, guided their decisions by eloquent and burning words that fell from her lips with irresistible fascination. Her ardor stimulated their zeal. Her impassioned appeals fired them with new and daring efforts to shake off the oppressive yoke of kingly aristocracy. Thus conspicuously arrayed against the royalists, Monsieur Roland's name was upon every lip, with praises on one side and bitter denunciations on the other, a hostility that nerved his wife with a stronger enthusiasm, and absorbed all the powers of her indefatigable mind in the one idea and aim of universal freedom. Louis the Sixteenth, irresolute and yielding, attempted to conciliate the stormy populace and to avert the accumulating vengeance of years from his devoted head. But the iniquities of his predecessors and the surrounding nobility were destined to be visited on this monarch, too weak, too undiscerning, to arrest the furious passions he blindly tampered with. To appease the multitude, he convened the National Assembly. This body consisted of the nobility, the higher clergy, and representatives from all parts of the nation. M. Roland, the favorite and leading man of the revolutionary party in the city of Lyon, was elected their representative by a large majority. On the 20th of February, 1791, he repaired to Paris with his wife, who a few years before sat a homeless, obscure maiden in a desolate garret, but now brilliant, wealthy, and influential, was the worshipped heroine of the Republican Party. She daily attended the sittings of the Assembly, and listened with intense interest to the exciting debates. The refined and courtly bearing, the polished and cultivated language of the Royalists, struck her favorably, in contrast with the coarse plebeian manners and illiterate speech of the Democrats. But, though her tastes would have inclined her to the former, the latter involved her principles, and contrast only served to increase her ardent wish for the education and refinement of the lower classes. Before the close of the first sitting of the assembly, the nobility were vanquished, and the royal family were compelled to abandon their palaces at Versailles and remain in Paris. The contest assumed a new phase being sustained between the Girondists and Jacobins, one party intent upon the preservation of the throne, limited in its power by a free constitution, the other fiercely bent upon the overthrow of the altar, the throne, the distinctions of nobility, and every barrier that prevented the entire equality of all classes. M. Roland and his wife zealously supported the former. The leading and most intelligent of the Girondists assembled four evenings in the week, at the home of M. Roland, attracted by his integrity and calm, deliberate wisdom, as well as by the more fascinating conversational powers of his brilliant wife, to whose opinions they paid the most sincere and flattering deference. Among those who frequented her saloons was a young lawyer of repulsive appearance, stupid and awkward, possessed of an obstinate temper, utterly devoid of sensitiveness, 
caring as little for applause as the hisses of contempt with which his long, dry speeches were invariably received in the assembly. Madame Roland alone discovered genius in the sullen, moody young man. She saw the energy, the rock-like fixedness of purpose, the hatred of luxury and aristocracy that would make him a favorite with the multitude, and feeling him to be a dangerous enemy, yet not a friend to be trusted, she welcomed him to her circle more from policy than choice. He listened, entranced, to the eloquent voice and clear reasoning of the intrepid Madame Roland, and bowed in awe to her high-souled principles, yet was ready to aim a deadly blow at them, and at her who gave them utterance, when ambition or interest suggested. This was Robespierre. Abbott says of his admiration of that accomplished woman, he studied Madame Roland with even more of stoical apathy than another man would study a book which he admires. The next day he would give utterance in the assembly, not only to the sentiments, but even to the very words and phrases which he had carefully garnered from the exuberant diction of his eloquent instructress. Occasionally every eye would be riveted upon him, and every ear attentive, as he gave utterance to some lofty sentiment in impassioned language which had been heard before in sweeter tones from more persuasive lips. On one occasion, in the early part of his career, having laid himself under the displeasure of the multitude, and exposed to accusation from the assembly, Madame Roland found him a place of security, and pled for him with an influential member of the assembly, till his defense was promised. Robespierre escaped to become the assassin of his benefactors. In September 1791, the assembly was dissolved, and Monsieur Roland and his wife retired from Paris. The two or three months of seclusion that succeeded, rather inspired them for new efforts than made them forget the perils of France. A new assembly convened in November, and though the previous members could not be re-elected, Monsieur and Madame Roland determined to return to Paris and share the danger and excitement daily increasing in the metropolis. The most influential and learned men from all parts of the nation gathered there to watch the shaping of events that every moment assumed a more threatening aspect. Clubs were formed to discuss the momentous questions of the times, and every evening various private saloons were the scenes of exciting and intensely interesting debate. The position and influence of the Rolands is thus described. Monsieur Roland was grave, taciturn, oracular. He had no brilliance of talent to excite envy. He displayed no ostentation in dress or equipage or manners to provoke the desire in others to humble him. His reputation for stoical virtue gave a wide sweep to his influence. His very silence invested him with a mysterious wisdom. Consequently, no one feared him as a rival, and he was frequently thrust forward as the unobjectionable head of a party by all who hoped, through him, to promote their own interests. He was what we call in America an available candidate. Madame Roland, on the contrary, was animated and brilliant. Her genius was universally admired. Her bold suggestions, her shrewd counsel, her lively repartee, her capability of cutting sarcasm, rarely exercised, her deep and impassioned benevolence, her unvarying cheerfulness, the sincerity and enthusiasm of her philanthropy, and the unrivaled brilliance of her conversational powers, made her the center of a system around which the brightest intellects were revolving. Verginon, Petion, Brissot, and others whose names were then comparatively unknown, but whose fame has since resounded through the civilized world, loved to do her homage. With such elements of popularity, it is not surprising that they were elevated to a position in which the prisoner king was obliged to place them to appease the stormy populace. Murders were nightly committed. The terrified nobles were hastily escaping with their families. Confusion and death reigned everywhere. 
there was no expedient left the monarch but to accede to the demands of the people, dismiss his ministry, and replace it by Republican candidates. M. Roland was immediately selected by the Girondists as Minister of the Interior, a post scarcely inferior to the crown itself, and especially elevated at this moment when only the shadow of authority remained with the king. M. Roland and his wife immediately occupied the palace which had been the recipient of Neckar, but a short time before and furnished by him with regal splendor. At last the scornful Manon was the mistress of one of those magnificent palaces, was elevated to an equality with kings and princes, and rolled through the thoroughfares of Paris in one of the very gilded coaches that had excited her childish contempt. Madame Roland, however, was in a position that rightly belonged to her, and which she filled with unaffected grace and dignity. She found full scope for her abundant talents, so assiduously cultivated in her youth an opportunity for the magnanimous exercise of her forgiving and generous temper. On one occasion, after leaving her elegant dining-hall, where she had entertained the greatest men in France, she found in the saloon an old man, who, with profound respect, begged an interview with the Minister of the Interior. She discovered in him a haughty aristocrat, who many years before had humiliated her proud spirit by leaving her, on the occasion of a visit, to dine with the menials. She exulted in her own thoughts at the reversed position in which they now stood, but generously restrained any manifestation of her triumph. From all the splendid apartments of the palace, Madame Roland selected a small, retired room, furnished as a library, and where she spent nearly all her time. Here gathered the influential members of the assembly, discussing the momentous affairs of state, occasionally turning to consult her, while she sat at a little distance, at a small work-table, occupied with her needle or pen. Here she wrote the proclamations, the state papers, and the letters which were presented to the king in assembly in M. Roland's name, securing to him the enthusiastic admiration alone due to herself. The Jacobin party were every day increasing in strength, and ready to pour from the cellars and haunts of vice with which Paris was thronged, numberless advocates of their ferocious measures. The king had already been insulted in his palace by the mob. The royalists had fled to Coblenz, and were preparing to march with the Prussian army to reinstate the French monarch, a movement which filled both the Girondists and Jacobins with alarm. Louis, irresolute and vacillating, took no decided measures. He endeavored to conciliate all parties, and thus gain the confidence and support of none. At this crisis, Madame Roland, in behalf of the Girondists and in the name of the minister, addressed a bold and eloquent letter to the king, demanded him to proclaim war against the emigrants, and take instant measures to prevent their mediated attack, in union with the Prussians, upon Paris. By thus cooperating with the Girondists, his crown might be saved, though his power would be limited, while if he opposed them, his downfall and horrible anarchy must ensue. The letter, written with glowing and impassioned eloquence, was given by M. Roland to the king on the 11th of June, 1792. Its proposed decree was too unpalatable to the monarch the truth which it contained too plain for the royal ear. He commented upon it by peremptorily dismissing M. Roland from office. "'Here am I dismissed from office,' exclaimed the deposed minister to his wife on entering her library. "'Present your letter to the assembly, that the nation may see for what counsel you have been dismissed,' replied the intrepid Madame Roland. The letter was presented. It received unbounded applause from the assembly, and was ordered to be printed and scattered throughout every department in France. It was a firebrand, thrown among combustibles. 
the rapturous applause of millions followed the hero to the obscure retreat which madame roland selected in a retired street of the metropolis but here they were sought out and their apartments thronged with the admiring adherence of both parties the girondists now no longer willing to support the king openly proposed the establishment of a republic danger hourly increased the populace incensed at the removal of monsieur roland attacked the tuileries insulted the monarch and the royal family and in every possible way vented their rage and hatred louis was obliged to consent to the reinstatement of the republican minister and again monsieur roland and his wife occupied the magnificent palace from which they had suddenly been expelled the arrest and imprisonment of louis the sixteenth soon after caused monsieur roland to send in his resignation to the assembly since the office he held was virtually annulled he could now have escaped with his wife from the frightful scenes daily enacting in the streets of paris but her courageous spirit would not recoil from danger or death so long as a hope remained of rescuing france from threatened anarchy the rapid approach of the prussian army terrified all parties the jacobins having obtained the ascendancy of power in paris and determined to save themselves from the vengeance of the advancing army ordered every man in paris capable of bearing arms to prepare to advance to the frontiers and repulse the emigrant royalists and their allies in order to ensure this decree and to rid themselves of all who were secretly ready to fall upon them when encouraged by the near approach of the army the gates of paris were closed and at night every house in the metropolis was entered by parties of jacobins its apartments and most secret recesses searched victims dragged forth from every possible place of concealment and horribly murdered everyone who gave the slightest suspicion of favoring the royalists were instantly put to death the innocent and guilty perished together homes were deluged with the blood of helpless and innocent victims fathers perished with their helpless children beautiful women were dragged to the guillotine the prisons were crowded with trembling victims who were one after another beheaded in the courtyards till the pavements ran with blood fiends thirsting for the heart's blood of both friend and foe prowled through the streets sheathing their daggers in human flesh at every step this frightful massacre continued till every royalist had fallen and now the frenzied jacobins fixed their bloody fangs upon the girondists a fierce struggle for supremacy in the convention ensued it was more than a political reaching after power more than patriotic fervor that inspired the eloquent addresses at the tribune it was a struggle for life one party or the other must lay their heads beneath the axe the jacobins attempted to strike a deadly blow at the girondists by bringing an accusation against their inspiring genius madame roland a spy was employed to ingratiate himself in her confidence and by perverting her expressions obtain her accusation and bring her to the scaffold she quickly penetrated his designs and scornfully repulsed his friendship he however charged her with carrying on a secret correspondence with exiled royalists and she was summoned before the tribunal a vast assemblage awaited the entrance of the woman whose fame had sounded throughout europe and whose influence had so strongly wielded the assembly everyone was anxious and curious to behold the wonderful being who retaining a feminine seclusion yet breathed through manly lips a thrilling patriotism worthy of a roman orator at the instant she appeared a respectful silence pervaded the assemblage old man and young friend and enemy even robespierre and marat watched with undisguised admiration the majestic bearing yet womanly loveliness and modesty with which this noble woman advanced and stood before the bar 
Her replies to the President were full of dignity and frankness, uttered in sweet, clear tones that fell with a magical effect upon the listeners. Every answer exposed more clearly the villainy and falsehood of her accuser, and when she tremulously began her own defense, gathering courage as she spoke, till the eloquence and fervor of her exalted spirit was showered in words of fire upon the assembly, there was not an eye but was riveted upon her, not an ear but strove to catch every syllable that fell from her lips. They sat, silent and entranced, and when her voice ceased, shouts of approval rose on every side. She was acquitted both by friend and foe, and even the heartless bloodhound whose life she had saved, and who was soon to drag her to the scaffold, could not withhold a smile of approval and admiration as she glided triumphantly from among them. Four or five months of turmoil, of hatred, of frightful anarchy, heightened the unbridled and murderous passions of the populace. The Jacobins governed the assembly. The mob governed the Jacobins. The deliberations of the convention were guided by the thousands of assassins who, with upheld daggers, crowded the lobbies, and surrounded the building in hoarse tumult. The death of Louis the Sixteenth was demanded, and in the midst of an exciting scene every Girondist was obliged to ascend the tribune and pronounce death upon the king, or feel the cold steel sliding quickly into his own heart. This submission did not cool the unquenchable hatred of the mob. Conspiracies were repeatedly formed to assassinate the Girondists, at one moment almost beneath the gleaming weapons in the convention, at another roused only in time to bar their doors against creeping demons, waiting the stroke of a certain hour to plunge the deadly knife in their bosoms. Madame Roland, exposed to the execrations of the populace because of her well-known position among the Girondists, was entreated to seek safety. Some devoted friends brought her the dress of a peasant girl, urging her to assume the disguise and fly with her daughter that her husband might follow her unencumbered. But she spurned to save herself thus. Throwing the dress from her, she exclaimed, I am ashamed to resort to any such expedient. I will neither disguise myself nor make any attempt at secret escape. My enemies may find me always in my place. If I am assassinated, it shall be in my own home. I owe my country an example of firmness, and I will give it. At M. Roland's resignation, they had again retired to an obscure dwelling in the Rue de la Harpe. Here, in a solitary room, they still received the agitated supporters of the Republic, in vain attempting to devise measures to stem the overwhelming tide deluging France, and gradually circling into a dizzy whirlpool that was finally to engulf both the assassin and the victim. Each day the circles grew narrower and swifter, and the Girondists, unable to escape from a vortex bearing them on to certain death, could only fortify themselves to meet it heroically. End of section 40 Recording by Matthew Reese, Davenport, Iowa.